why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hands, and we will have some ushers happily get you guys a Bible. Um, I want to jump right in, and uh, our time is going to be limited here today, um, and uh, so I, wanna, I, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time building up to this, so we will jump right in, Ephesians chapter 5, we'll pick it up at verse 1. Um, I'm going to read a handful of verses. Uh, in fact, go to the next slide, if you would, um, where we have the little scripture verse. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a handful of these verses that are on here, and we will basically end at verse 20. Um, we've been looking through the book of Ephesians over the past several months, and uh, right now we're chapter 5. But um, I want to focus specifically today on chapter 5, verse 20. But to get to verse 20, I want to make sure that we kind of understand a little bit of the context of what Paul's been uh, talking about. So before we jump in and read, I want you to be aware of some of the... Um, Uh, what's called imperatives. And an imperative is basically something that a writer is asking somebody else to do something. So in this case, an imperative is Paul saying, walk in the light. That's an imperative. His uh, his command to us is to walk in the light. And again, we'll try to unpack that and understand what that looks like. But pay attention to the imperatives. If you're having a hard time figuring that out, I actually embolded them. So make it easy for you to identify some of them. So um, I'll start at verse 1, and we'll just kind of cherry-pick through some of the verses all the way down to ending at verse 20. Verse 1 says this, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us. Walk as children of the light, in verse 8. Verse 9 says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. Verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Verse 14, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk or how you live your life. Verse 20, this is where we end, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, we ask you right now that you would help us understand what this has to say. God, bring uh, light to our minds that as we unpack this and understand it, that it wouldn't just simply be information but God, that it would be used by your Holy Spirit to bring transformation to our lives and change to who we are and how we live our lives. And so uh, we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in short, what Paul's been doing is been giving these um, imperatives all the way throughout chapter 5. And what he's been doing is been basically calling us, welcoming, welcoming those who are followers of Jesus to live like Jesus, to live like God. That's why he starts out verse 1 by saying, be imitators of God. But then he goes on and he says, walk in love. And the concept of walk means to how you order your life. So think of someone, it's like sort of a metaphor, how you walk or, you know, walk in according to God. It's a way of saying, order your life in in accordance to God in a way that is consistent with the nature of who God is. That's what basically walk means. And Paul's going to then go on to say, walk in the light. Uh, You know, to walk as children of light. And the idea here is light is sort of, connected with the concept of love. Uh, It speaks of sort of moral purity, a moral wholeness. And so walk in love. In other words, as we walk in light, as we walk in love, as we live out some of these um, imperatives that we're called to live out, um, what we're doing really is we're giving indication to the fact that we are children of God. In other words, our lives are to reflect the character and the nature of God. So God is in light, or God is light, so therefore as we walk in light, uh, we are reflecting God. As we, because God is love, as we love one another, and what love is, love is that hard, gritty, 
uh, thing that we do to show and demonstrate compassion and kindness to others, and not just those that we like, not just those that are nice to us, but even to our enemies. And that's, it's that, that's who God is. God is love. God loves not just those that are kind to him, that are nice to him, that are always like giving praise to God, but God is even kind, believe it or not, shockingly, to even his enemies. And so what, what Paul's calling us into is to live a life that is reflective of God. Now, that as a side, it's important to understand, we've been saying this all along, that all of the imperatives that Paul gives to us are always firmly rooted in what we would call the indicatives. And what that means is it's rooted in um, passages or ideas that indicate, that's what indicative means, that indicate something that's already been done for us. So in other words, every imperative that Paul gives us is actually built upon chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians. In other words, everything that God has done for us in Christ, everything that God has richly lavished upon us, everything that God has done through Jesus in taking our sin upon himself and washing us and cleansing us and taking us who were enemies of God by our lifestyle because we walked in darkness and actually bridging the gap rather than alienating us, rather than kicking us to the curb, rather than sending us to hell for eternity, God shockingly, miraculously invites us, welcomes us, loves us, forgives us, cleanses us of our defilement and calls us his sons and daughters and gives us the inheritance of everything that he has. Shocking. That's, that's good news, by the way. Some of us are like, should, should I say an amen right there? Yes, that, that, there's a perfect spot to just sort of insert an amen because it's really good news. And this is what Paul is really talking about is that God is really good and God has done all these amazing things. And so what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks is that those that walk in the light, those that have been transition in their lives from darkness to light have certain ways in which they live out. And one of the ways in which they demonstrate the fact that they are no longer in darkness, that something called light has actually transformed them and changed them, uh, one of the in- indicators of this is that they actually give thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying, in other words. So um, what we've been trying to kind of put together side by side is every week looking at sort of this idea of what it looks like to walk in light. But at the same time, Paul also identifies on here that when we walk in light, like in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So what we've been saying is that when you walk in the light, you will by nature bring exposure to something, to darkness, something that is uh, by definition, darkness. And so, for example, it's kind of what we've been saying, uh, it could go something like this. Walking in the light, in this case, looks like giving thanks to God. Exposure of darkness looks like uh, ingratitude. In other words, darkness, in this case, actually looks like ingratitude. Now, if you to pause right now and just say, on a purely humanistic level, meaning interrelational, think about people that you know, think about people that are close to you, people that you maybe care about, And think about those that are constantly complaining, constantly murmuring, constantly frustrated, and they can never see anything good about life or about relationships or about anything good in their life. They're always in a perennial state of woe. Are those people draining or life-giving? Draining. In other words, it takes life. It takes life to, to give to them, to commit to them. At some point, 
there's a tendency to be like, especially if you're down, you're having a rough time in life, it's hard to want to engage in relationships like that because it's, it takes life out of you. It's life taking rather than life giving. In other words, and if God is life, then everything that God does is life giving. Not life taking, life giving. So therefore, to walk with God would be to li- be engaged in life giving. So on the contrary, when you meet people that are always filled with gratitude, they're the ones that notice every little detail that you do for them. They might be like, thank you so much for that cup of coffee, or thank you for noticing you know, my new pair of shoes, or thank you for noticing my haircut, or thank you for whatever. Those types of people that are always lavishing gratitude upon you and thanking you and thankful for life and thankful for all the good things that they have in life. Those are the people that are life-giving. When you're around them, you're like, oh my gosh, I love hanging out with these people. They're just life-giving because they are reflective of God. They're walking in the light and not in darkness. Does that make sense? You guys following along so far? So I was listening to a message this past week, and this might sound a little bit like a tangent, but it's not. I promise it'll come back into the message. Um, and basically, the, the theologian in this lecture he was giving uh, kind of made this interesting contrast. And what he was saying is that the whole storyline of the Bible can basically be summarized by two specific narratives. And uh, the next slide, I'll show you a little bit of a graph on this. The, and basically, he gives this idea of the narrative of abundance and the narrative of accumulation. And uh, those phrases need definition because alone by themselves, they don't really make a whole lot of sense. But... Um, and so the rest of it, like the last four things on there in the bottom, I kind of was, as I was working this out and thinking through it, and it's like, wow, this is what a genius way to think about it. But what he was basically saying is that the narrative of, of abundance really taps into this fact that it believes at the heart of its nature that God created this world, God orders this world, and God sustains this world. And to add to that, God sustains all life in this world. That means God sustains you. God feeds you, God takes care of you, God loves you, God clothes you, God cares for you. All right, let me just pause real quick and say, because we might hear the word abundance, and if you're somebody that has watched too much Christian television, you might think, well, it's just talking about the uh, health and wealth doctrine. And I would say this, I absolutely repudiate that doctrine. It's false theology, it's not a gospel, it's not at all helpful, but the idea that oftentimes goes like this, that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and having a nice car, and uh, a good, you know, sound, healthy weight, and a beautiful spouse, and God will take care of all you. So if you have enough faith, God will give you all these things. And that's a complete, like, broad stroking of all that. But the point of the matter is, is it basically leads to this concept that God wants you to constantly have lots of good stuff, hence the name prosperity gospel. So that, that's not at all what this is talking about. So just to make sure that you understand the distinction here. But the idea of abundance, or the narrative of abundance, derives itself from the fact that there is a God that created all things, this world, and that he created this world so that it's actually life-giving. When you think about this, where do we get all of our food? From this planet. Like, food comes from this, and sometimes from factories, but good food that you should be eating and other stuff you should be avoiding comes from factories. Good food that comes from God, from this planet, comes from, like, you know, farmer's markets on Saturday mornings down at Madonna. and th- You know, you get the idea. So the point of the matter is this, all right? Some of you are like, amen, preach it, brother. Like, some of you are like, don't take away my Cheetos. Here's my point. This planet that we live on is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And it's a life-giving gift from God. We live from this planet. We eat from this planet. Oxygen comes from this planet. Food comes from this planet. Sex 
comes from on this planet, in the relationships we have in marriage on this planet. All of it comes from God, the creator. In other words, God gave us a gift called planet Earth that keeps on giving. He is a good God. He sustains. God is abundant in his kindness and his goodness. And he is a God that leads us into this narrative of abundance, if you would. On the contrary is the narrative of accumulation. This basically believes that I create and order my own world and I'm responsible for sustaining sustaining my own self, my own life. In a lot of ways, this was sort of when he was saying this within the context of God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. And they came out from underneath the leadership or the authority of Pharaoh. And in Pharaoh's Egypt, Pharaoh was God. Pharaoh was king. In other words, all good things came from Pharaoh's hand. You would eat from Pharaoh's hand. You would suffer under Pharaoh's hand. Everything came from Pharaoh. If Pharaoh was feeling good, he'd give you food. If Pharaoh was grumpy, he would make you make bricks. If Pharaoh was really grumpy, he would not allow you to make bricks with, uh, with you know, like the children of Israel, with actual straw. He would make them go out and work extra hard. You know, 12-hour shift days, 24 hours, you know, constantly, seven days a week, never having a day off. That, that's who Pharaoh was. And so that type of life, under the hand of Pharaoh, leads ultimately to a perennial form of anxiety. You're never at rest. You're never calm. You're never able to take a break. You're never able to stop. You're never able to just calm yourself. You're never able to Sabbath and stop the work. Because there's never an end to the work. But life under the narrative of abundance is rest. This is one of the reasons why Jesus would say to his disciples, come unto me who are labor and heavy laden and you're burdened and you're filled with anxiety and your life is stressed. You feel like you're constantly filled with like anxiety. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Because life under Yahweh is a life under rest. Life under Yahweh is a life defined by rest. Life within the narrative of accumulation is one that is constantly working, constantly worrying, constantly filled with anxiety. Because you at the end of the day are the one that is responsible for everything. And that consumes a lot of energy. And on the one hand... Under the life or the narrative of abundance, it's life-giving. God feeds. God takes care. God takes care of our hearts, and God satisfies. On, under the narrative of accumulation, it's death-producing. Under the narrative of abundance, there's generosity. People can be generous. We can give our bread away. We can give our money away. We can give our time and our energy away because we know that there's more to be given to us by God to keep us being able to give it away. So in other words, people that are living under the narrative of abundance, under God's sustaining, kind, loving hand, we can be generous with our money. We can give it away because we know that at some point, God's going to take care of us anyhow. He loves us. We can be generous with our time because we know that God is able to somehow miraculously multiply it. We can give our lives away with great generosity because we have a great, generous God who will always sustain. But under the narrative of accumulation, you have nothing but greed. You have to store. You have to build. You have to hoard. You have to keep building storehouses for your goods because there is never a guarantee that tomorrow will all be gone. And that, you know, there's other layers to this. You can say that oftentimes leads to great militarization, meaning you've got to protect your goods. You've got to somehow provide forms of security for those goods, because if they're gone, if they're stolen, you have nothing left to show for it. But 
under the narrative of abundance, ultimately, those that are living within that narrative, there's great gratitude. You have this ability to look up to God and say, everything I have in this life is a gift from my creator, God, from Yahweh, ultimately demonstrated greatly through the person of who Jesus is. But under the narrative of accumulation, there's nothing but ingratitude. There's really no ability, no way for you to really be grateful for anything because it all comes from your hand. You are the one that sustains it. And those type of people are always life-taking. There is nothing by way of gratitude that can really give. So back to the story. Paul basically says to walk in the light is ultimately to look like giving thanks. And this exposes the darkness of ingratitude. So I want to ask basically three questions of the text, and then we will close this up. First of which is, to whom are we to give thanks? Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, or 5 verse 20, basically says this, to God the Father. Now this is an important kind of statement that Paul is making here, because we're not just simply giving thanks to some arbitrary deity up in the sky. We're not giving thanks to our lucky stars. We're not giving thanks to Allah. We're not giving thanks to the Greek pantheon of gods, or a theos, some unknown, unnamed powerful, untamed deity. We're actually giving thanks to God. As Paul actually adds the word Father. This is really essential because oftentimes we lose sight of the fact that we actually have a God that is not just powerful, but he's also fatherly. You know what that means? That means that if you're a Christian, that if you have given your heart over to this God, you're no longer an orphan. You're not just simply living on your own, trying to define your own life, trying to figure life out on your own. You actually have a father that loves you, that cares for you. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says when you pray, pray to your father. Say, our father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The whole point is, is that he's not just some sort of raw entity or raw power out there to strike, but he's like a father that actually nurtures and cultivates and loves and cares cares for you this is the image this is the picture that paul is summoning when he's causing us to think about who god is that when we give thanks we're giving thanks to god who is a father second thing question is when are we to give thanks and this is when it gets a little bit challenging okay when are we to give thanks at church on sunday period you know entering the six more days of the week and grumble and complain, you know, six rest of the days, and then every Sunday we kind of put on our, like, little Christian face, and we're like, praise Jesus. It's like the rest of the week we're just constantly frustrated and upset, and, you know, the point of the matter is, is Paul actually answers that, and he says, give thanks always for everything, always, all times, and in everything. This is where it gets really challenging, because we have to ask the question, does when Paul says everything, does he mean everything? Does he mean even in the midst of the diagnosis of cancer? Does it mean even in everything in the midst of you know, marital brokenness? Does it mean everything even in the midst of joblessness? What does it mean to be thankful to God, our Father, in everything? Shockingly, that's exactly what Paul means. There's like no hidden tricks to the Greek here. It's just, it is what it is. And we'll unpack that more in just a second because that's challenging to us. Because when we think about giving thanks, it's easy for us to give thanks in the good things. That's kind of how like, we would like to edit this text. You know, we're like, give thanks to God. Like if the passage said, give thanks to God when all things are awesome in your life, we'd be like, that's one of my favorite verses. 
But that's not what it says. It says, give thanks to God when you're, when, you know, in everything. In everything. The challenges and the hardships and the struggles and trials. Give thanks to God, your Father, in those moments. So, that leads me to kind of move on real quick. We'll take a look at four different types of people that basically are kind of, I think, within the mindset of gratitude and gratitude. I'll give a quick look. The first three actually are uh, actions, uh, responses of faith, meaning these are faith-filled reactions, responses. The last one is actually a faithless response, or in other words, uh, um, disbelief or an unbelieving response. So first of all, we'll see that there are those uh, in the first category who give thanks after receiving the blessing or deliverance from God. They give thanks after they receive the blessing. Now, I think we'd all agree that's most of us, right? I mean, would you agree that it's easier for us to actually give thanks to God after the rent check comes in the mail and we're able to pay it, after you know, our you know, spouse gives birth to a healthy child and everything's great, after you know, we say I do at the altar? It's easier to say, God, thank you for everything you've given me after the blessing or the deliverance actually comes. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a biblical response. It's oftentimes the way people respond. Um, and what we see are a couple examples of this. Exodus chapter 15, uh, we're basically told that Moses, they come out of Egypt. Uh, the immediate response is Moses sings a, a song. I won't read the passage. You guys can read it. He basically says, uh, you know, I will sing to the Lord for he's triumphed victoriously. And the idea is that, or triumphed gloriously, that, that in response to God doing something great, we will give thanks to this great God. Revelation chapter 15, uh, it's called the Song of Moses. And this is after God moved greatly and mightily, uh, rescuing people and vanquishing foes. It says that they actually sang this song to the Lamb, Jesus. And it says, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. So these are songs of worship and uh, prayers of gratitude after the blessings, after the, the deliverance of God. So those are the first type of people. Second type of people are those that give thanks before receiving the blessings and deliverance. In other words, before any real, true, tangible evidence of God actually pulling through, um, they know what they're going to be facing. But even before the rent check comes, they're like, God, thank you. You're going to pay a rent. I don't know how you're going to do it. Thank you. Before, you know... All these other things come into play. It's like, God, thank you. I, I, I know, I don't know how I'm going to get through all this. I just know that somehow you're going to be faithful in the midst of this. So, for example, there's a couple other verses as well um, that we see. In fact, actually one, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. We actually read this last week, if you guys were here. It's a passage. It's about a guy by the name of Jehoshaphat. He was a king. He was actually advised uh, to kind of build his army. And part of the ways he was ordered to build his army was to uh, call what's called the Levites and the high priest, and they were to go out and sing a song uh, prior to the engagement in battle, which is kind of a crazy um, military technique. I don't think we see that too often today. It's not like, you know, we send out you 2 in front of our battle, you know, I, I, you know, on the ground before boots hit the ground. We're like, there's you 2 doing a concert for Taliban. Isn't that awesome? Like, like, that's not what happens. Like, we don't do that because it's just, it's a strange tactic. But this is what God called uh, Jehoshaphat to do. He goes, go out and have your people sing a song of praise and thanksgiving to me before the victory is going to be delivered. And it says they sang, give thanks, and they gave thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures. And ultimately in the story that they won the battle. And the idea here was that they gave thanks to God even before the victory was actually in their hand. That takes faith to do that, by the way. 
You guys know that? Because oftentimes we don't, we don't have what we see. Like, we don't, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, but what faith is, is basically says, I don't know what the exact outcome is going to be. I don't know exactly what the diagnosis is going to entail. I don't know what the challenge is going to provide. I don't know what the extenuating circumstances are going to involve, but I know that God is somehow with me, and God will somehow deliver me, or help me, or give me grace even in the midst of it. And that takes faith and confidence that God will do that. The third thing is that we see that there are those that give thanks during darkness and suffering and trial. They actually give thanks during the circumstances. A couple verses is um, in the book of Daniel. Some of you guys are familiar. Daniel actually lived in a region called Persia, which would have been modern-day Iran. And uh, next slide. And while he was in Persia, uh, he would basically there was a law that was passed, and the law is in essence uh, said that Daniel is not allowed to pray to Yahweh. So that was, that was troubling. Obviously, Daniel followed God, and Daniel wanted to be a good Jew. And Daniel was trying to live as a good Jew amidst the pagan culture and society. Um, in a lot of ways, it, that's kind of not too far off from what you and I as human beings, Christians, followers of Jesus, are trying to do here on the Central Coast and beyond is try to be faithful to Yahweh, trying to be faithful to God in the midst of a culture and an environment that in a lot of ways is sort of hostile to God. And that's what Daniel was. In fact, there was a law that was passed that says uh, nobody, no Jew can pray to any other God except, you know, uh, the, the great God or whatever, the, the, the leader of uh, the Persians. And so Daniel knew this and that he knew that his, not only his life, but his livelihood, in other words, how he conducted his life, how he ordered his life, everything was potentially um, in line for a total major upset. And Daniel says, okay, life is about to get really crazy, thrown into turmoil, disaster, Everything I've known is going to be displaced. What's Daniel going to do? Well, in the middle of this trial, he actually goes, gets before God, gets on his knees, and begins to pray. He does the very thing that was outlawed. It's amazing. Daniel is praying to God in the middle of his trial. Uh, Another one is uh, Jonah. I love this passage, and some of you guys are familiar with Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a great whale. And so here's Jonah in the middle of the whale. He's actually kind of looking back, sort of him writing his testimony. Here's what happened. Jonah says, while I was in the middle of this great whale, this great fish, he says, I prayed, and here's what I said. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he says, with a voice of thanksgiving. There you have it, thanksgiving. Jonah's in the middle of these horrifying circumstances, trial, hardship, and in the middle of this, he prays to God. He says, God, I thank you. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what you're doing, but I thank you that somehow, whatever it is that you're going to do, you're a good God. This is a hard thing to do. I admit, some of you guys are familiar with the story that I'd kind of come out of over the, the past several months. Um, actually started almost about a year ago, is that I was, got away for a couple days, and I came back, and uh, while I was away, I, was, I had my guitar, I was singing and stuff, and it was kind of quiet, it was sort of a little quiet getaway, and just by myself, and I came back, and I was teaching something the, a couple days after that, and I had, and I'm going to gross you out, but I had some blood come out of my mouth. I was like, whoa, what's, that's weird. Like, that's probably not normal. And uh, I come to find out that it was linked to my vocal cords, that something was going on with my vocal cords, that I had a growth on my vocal cords. And so in February, I actually had an operation. And at that time, we were, you know, I asked, remember asking the doctor, like, why do you guys, why do you want to do a surgery? He's like, uh, rule out tumor. I'm like, okay, like cancer? He's like, yeah, cancer. And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? Like, if I have cancer, like, what, what's that going to look like? 
He's like, I don't know. It depends on how much it's spread. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Uh, that means if my vocal cords get operated on and it's cancer and it spreads, it's bad, then more vocal cords need to be cut off. And that means I won't have a voice and it means I won't be able to talk. And if I talk for a living and do this for a living, that means I probably won't be able to do this for a living anymore. It's like my whole life literally potentially was like threatened. Everything that I've done, like everything I've done for the past 21 years of my life is like potentially going to be gone. And it was scary. It was anxiety producing. And on top of that, shortly after uh, the surgery, um, our house was infected, we found out, with mold. And so we actually had to evacuate our house. So a month, my family were like basically homeless. We were living in someone's house that graciously you know, uprooted themselves so that we can live in their house. And it was a very kind gesture, and we were very thankful for them. But you know, our lives were nothing but completely displaced and disoriented. I couldn't talk. My wife needed me to talk, and I'm like typing and texting to her and you know, writing things out in this pad. She's like, I need you to stop doing that. I need to talk to you. I need to hear your voice. I'm like, I can't talk. And, you know, and it was just absolutely disorienting. Coming to church was hard because I, I couldn't talk to anybody. And you know, people would ask me questions, and I, I, I couldn't talk. I'd like, write on my pad, and I have horrible handwriting. So anytime I'd write on this pad, I'm like, chicken scratch. I know you can't read it. I'm trying to interpret this crazy stuff I'm writing. And it was really hard, really frustrating. And on top of that, shortly after that, uh, I still had a little bit of blood. And the doctor's like, hmm, that's really strange. I think we needed to you know, do an MRI on your lungs. And I'm like, oh, for what? He's like, cancer. I'm like, oh my gosh, a cancer threat again? That's ridiculous. And so this constant, ongoing barrage of like all these unknowns in the middle of these circumstances, what am I going to do? And yet, I knew enough to realize, like, if I go the path of the cynic, if I go the path of the complainer, if I go the path of the one that's always just frustrated with life, that's darkness. That leads to a path or a life of darkness. And I'm like, I don't feel like giving thanks to God. I don't feel God's nearness to me in this whole dark season. I don't feel anything good about the circumstances in my life. But I know somehow, I know too much to know that God is good, even though I don't sense it or feel it. Somehow God's good. And it was one of those things in those moments that my wife and I, beyond anything else, were coming together and just praying, God, help us to be thankful in our lives to you through this circumstance. You know, we got our kids watching us, and, you know, we want them to see, you know, a, a way that suffering could look. And, you know, so it's not like we're trying to be perfect. And, like, it was hard. It was a hard, challenging season. But, to be able to give thanks to God in the midst of hardships is what we see as a biblical response. Oftentimes, Jesus does that. Jesus prays to God. The interesting thing, I'll just say this real quick about suffering, is that suffering, when you go into suffering, when you go into trials and hardships and all these unknowns and all these things that kind of throw you into disorientation, one thing will always be certain. You will never come out of moments or periods or seasons or episodes of suffering the same person you were when you went in. Ever. You will never come out the same. Depending upon the magnitude of the suffering you go through, you'll either come out more cynical, more hardened, more frustrated, uh, just more difficult to get, a, get around. Uh, you will feel more entitled. You'll be the type of person that's always got a chip on your shoulder because you feel as if you deserve better. Or you will come out more life-giving, more kind, more gentle, more tender, more sensitive, more compassionate. Have you ever met people like that? Some go through the fire and they come out like hard. Others come through the fire and they are soft and beautiful and glorious. 
Because that's what we see ultimately with Jesus. And we'll finish with that in a second. The final response that we see through suffering is, or through this type of gratitude and ingratitude, is really this concept of denying God or ingratitude. There are those that are actually defined by ingratitude. And as I said, the first three actually indicate faith or trust faith responses, whether it's before, whether it's after, whether it's during each of those are uh, what's, what's uh, consistent in each one of them is that they all are tied together by way of faith. They all recognize that somehow God is in the midst. God was going ahead. God was behind. Either way, it's all faith responses. The final one is actually a non-faith response or a disbelief response. And basically, it's ingratitude. And what we see in Romans chapter 1 is kind of this description of what Paul says. Next slide. Paul says, for the wrath of God or the displeasure of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts, they were darkened. So what Paul basically said is that here these people were, all people, all of us, all of us in this room, human beings, humanity, were made in the image of God. And yet, there are those within God's creation who don't want to acknowledge the fact that they bear God's image. So if I can put it this way, as you think about it, is every one of us as human beings, we enjoy features of the image of God in us. We enjoy this. I want you to think about this for a second. If you've ever found yourself swept up in love or by love or being loved by somebody, how absolutely awesome is that? That's a feature of God. If you find yourself forgiven by somebody that you knew you wronged and they've granted you forgiveness, that's a feature of God. Those are all uh, indicators of the fact that we have borne the image of God. But when people who bear the image of God deny the reality of God, what they're actually doing, if you think of it this way, it's basically, if I could think of a phrase as I was kind of putting this together, it's basically like cosmic plagiarism. Here's what I mean. Plagiarism is when you take something, say an idea or a thought or art or a song, and you basically adopt it or make it your own, but you don't give the proper attribution to the actual artist that designed it or created it or wrote it. Does that make sense? And we all recognize that. We have laws in this country, in this nation, that basically say if you steal a song, if you steal a, you know, a, a, a photograph, and you make your website out of it, and you don't actually uh, credit the one who made the, took the picture... Or if you write a book and you basically don't cite the proper references to the person who gave you that idea, you can actually you know, be fined or maybe even do some jail time, I guess, in some circumstances. But the point of the matter is this, is that you and I bear the image of God. And we enjoy daily features of God in this life, and yet to not give proper attribution to God is a form of cosmic plagiarism. And Paul's going to say that actually has led by us divorcing our gratitude to God, even though we enjoy all the benefits that God has given us by being image bearers of God, it leads to all forms of brokenness and sin and rebellion against this God. And what Paul is saying is that this is a path of death and gratitude. So, final thing, I'm going to be done with this, is how are we to give thanks? How are we to give thanks? And we already looked at this in a sense that we are to give thanks always and in everything. But how, how, how do we do that? And what Paul says in 520, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what Paul is basically saying is do this. Give thanks to God our Father always and every, every way in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's basically saying in the honor of, in recognition of who Jesus is, in reflection, proper reflection of who Jesus is. And here's the crazy thing, because we can ask this question. How can somebody who's going through great challenges, great struggles, great periods or moments of loss, or threatened with great loss in their life, how can they actually go through those circumstances filled with gratitude to God? And the answer to that is an interesting one, because at the end of the day, Christianity is actually founded by a God who comes into this world, has everything, and yet strips himself of everything, all riches, all honor, all glory, and leaves all that behind, comes into this world, takes upon himself the form of a servant, like Philippians chapter 2 says, it becomes impoverished, derobed of his glory, suffers, dies on a cross. In other words, he loses everything. He is literally stripped of everything he has. Even his closest friends betray him. Not just friend, Judas, but friends, all of them, leave Jesus. He's utterly betrayed. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to him happens. He dies. But that's not the end of the story because three days later, he rose again. So if you think of it this way, the greatest, most threatening possibility to Jesus was death. And yet ultimately, Jesus comes out the other side of death. And he basically says this. This is the whole concept with the New Testament. Those that are in Christ not only died with Christ, but will also live again with Christ and reign with Christ and rise with Christ. So what that means is that the suffering and the challenges and the hardships and the circumstances and the setbacks and all these things that you are going through presently in this life, if you are in Christ, can never in an ultimate sense harm you. They may set you back, they may be challenges, they may be difficult, but they will not ultimately crush you or oppress you or destroy you. Why? Because we have a God that in the ultimate sense was oppressed and crushed for you so that you have hope in him that you will live again. I was thinking about this on a really practical level when I'm done. Is um, Just uh, about a week, two weeks ago, well, we have a good friend of ours that we just uh, remembered the year of her passing. And uh, she became a really good friend of my wife and she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, she had a young child and so unfortunately she was in her early 30s and then she just, she died. And it was really, it was, it, every once in a while, honestly, it's, I guess you would call it grieving. And I didn't really know her that well, but every once in a while, I just, I had these waves of thought that come to my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's gone. It's just weird. It's weird when you process the fact that someone's gone, they're, 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 they're not coming back. And, and yet, every time I, 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 I sense that emotion waving over me, kind of like, oh my gosh, she's gone. What does that mean? I, I'm also, at the same time, simultaneously reminded of the fact that she knew Jesus, she loved Jesus, she lived her life, and I had the opportunity of actually doing her funeral, and it was one of the most amazing Jesus-centered things I'd ever been in. And the thought that keeps coming back to me was that she's not dead, she's more alive than I am. She's with Christ. And the fact of the matter is, is we are not eternally separated from each other, because one day, we're going to get to be reunited with her, and we're going to see her again. And that is the hope that Jesus offers us and because of that, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of our circumstances, 
We have a God that pulls us out of the darkness, puts us in the light, so therefore Paul can say, give thanks to God, always, and in everything, to God your Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he invites us into. That is a path of life. I want to finish. And I just want to finish with some words of proclamation of this great God. Giving him thanks. Letting our gratitude rise to him. So that means I'm going to invite you guys to do that. So why don't we all stand. I'm going to have Mikey come on up and he'll close us in a song in a moment here. But I want to finish by just giving space for you guys to proclaim ways in which you're thankful to God. And we will do this. If you guys were here last week, you've been here in the past when we've done stuff like this. Um, just shout it out. Just, I mean, it's pretty simple. There's like no trick to it. Um, I'll pray. And then as we're just kind of in silence, feel free to just shout out your praises to God. Like, you know, just God, thank you for, you know, saving me in the midst of my challenging circumstance. Whatever it is. I mean, you can say it. Just, just put words to it. Because all of us, we are, again, at the beginning, like I said, we're either living our lives according to the narrative of abundance, whereby we recognize we have a God that orders our life, orders our world, and feeds us by his gracious hand, or we are consumed by the narrative of accumulation, and we're responsible for everything, and our lives are being broken through the darkness of ingratitude. But I want to invite you to come to this Jesus who washes and cleanses your sin, your transgression, the distance that is between you and God is bridged and you can come near to this God, eat at this table and feast. In fact, the word Thanksgiving that's actually used there is the Greek word that has been used for the English word Eucharist, which is oftentimes attributed to the Lord's Supper. You take the Lord's Supper as a way of gratitude and thankfulness that God, I can give thanks to you because even though I'm broken, because you are broken for me. So therefore, nothing at the end of the day can fully, truly crush me. Nothing can fully ruin me if I'm in you. Because the ultimate ruin and destruction of your soul that we all deserve because of our sin that separates from God has been canceled and covered and taken care of through Jesus. So I want to invite you to proclaim God's greatness. That sound good, guys? So just as I finish praying, feel free to shout it out nice and loud so we can all hear you and rejoice with you. You know, two or three of you say it at the same time. It's okay. Just, you know, maybe let someone go before you, whatever. Give them the opportunity, and then you can pick it up from there, and we'll finish the song. Sound good? God, just I'm going to start this by saying thank you. Thank you, God, for who you are. God, stir up gratitude in our hearts. Let it, let it lead us, demonstrate the greatness of life that you give to us, that you feed us. So God, let, let, let gratitude and thanksgiving arise in our hearts, in our praise, in our congregation right now.